Welcome to the Get Attention vlog and podcast. This is episode 39, Organizing Community. I had the privilege today of having a long conversation with Ben Welk, Benjamin Welk. If you look him up on LinkedIn, he's Benjamin. And, uh, you know, I've known Ben through the community and we've run into each other a fair amount of times, and uh, we have some filmmaking community ties uh, for certain. But um, I know him even better as an observer. Uh, ben has had a, a wonderful ability to get attention in the media and in social media because he is a community-minded dude. He has a heart for for spaces and community assets that promote well-being and health for a community. And, uh, you know, it's some of where his uh, collegiate training lies. It's also some of where just his natural self, um, you know, he emotes and connects to uh, what we know as a healthy community. And I can tell it vexes him when he sees a community that is living below its potential. And uh, he's committed his entire career to that. And just by observation, I knew that Ben was a guy who can find a way to get attention. And I'm going to foreshadow right now that one of the things that he does, and you should listen for this through the entire podcast, is um, he organizes people and gets them to connect to a common cause and a mission. And you'll hear that thematically through here. Um, but I'm going to also tip my hand that uh, look in the description below. There's a timestamp. That timestamp, after you listen to this entire thing, I want you to go back and re-listen to some actionable things that he shares. He is actually going to give you ideas in this of ways where you can go and get relevant, positive attention. Um, ben, I'm going to thank you now for your time and your attention. You are a gracious and wonderful dude. Um, and, you know, I'll probably say something nice like that at the end, too. But for now, let's roll the theme music and get into episode 39, Ben Welk, Organizing Community. One, two, three, listen. I know you largely because you are a very community-minded person. That is the, uh, your persona tends to put that out there. I think that's a, a lovely thing. And I would like to know um, from you first, Ben, what, who are you? What do you do for a profession? And what makes you tick? Sure. Um, you know, uh, really, some of this came from even an academic focus for me before it was professional. So I graduated with uh, my master's from the Rochester Institute of Technology um, back in 2013. And at that time, uh, I did some studies through the Center for Multidisciplinary Studies. Um, so I stacked uh, tourism, public policy, and marketing uh, together as my core focuses, uh, kind of in lieu of the fact that the university didn't have an urban studies program at a graduate level. And that was, you know, honestly, some of my first exposure to kind of some of the issues that were happening in Rochester and uh, the region as a whole. Um, There's some organic things that actually came out of being a student there. Uh, if you're familiar with the Brick City, you, you know that Henrietta is um, largely a pretty inauthentic commercial corridor and um, in some, some areas can lack a lot of local businesses. Uh, and so at times I, I just wanted to escape campus. And so I would start to drive down Scottsville Road and I'd find myself in the village of Scottsville, one of the oldest libraries in, in all of Monroe County, um, you know, at local uh, coffee shops like Artisan Coffee House, which was a, a adaptive reuse uh, gas station. 
um, you know, that focused on celebrating the arts in that community as well. And so um, part of these things started to kind of fuel a passion for me and an interest in uh, what were happening in main streets and what, were, what was really happening with communities in the region. And so when I graduated from RIT, um, you know, the first uh, role that I really took on was uh, I started a consulting company and I started working with a uh, downtown nonprofit, uh, Friends of the Garden Ariel, and they at the time were really focused on ways to kind of rejuvenate High Falls, uh, which I know you're familiar with and has a uh, kind of a checkered history of, of industrial contamination and pollutants and a failed entertainment district. Um, but has a 90-foot waterfall in the heart of uh, the city of Rochester uh, on the Genesee River. And so, you know, there were clear assets and resources that were available there, and uh, they needed somebody to advocate for them. And so really for the, for the better part of about a year and a half, two years, uh, working with that nonprofit, my role was to go out and to do the roadshow about some of their potential community development efforts. Um, and really since that time, uh, over the course of, of really the, the last six to seven years, um, you know, I've continued to be rooted in my consulting business. Uh, I actually took an employment position for the first time about a year and a half, uh, year and a half ago as a health and community infrastructure analyst uh, at a nonprofit here in Rochester called Common Ground Health. And so I continue to be kind of focused on two uh, core themes of that. One, you know, trying to make the community a healthier place for people um, to make healthier people. And then uh, really secondarily, uh, how to showcase our region in ways that it hasn't been uh, shown before and how, how to make connections between the urban populous, uh, you know, cities that we have that tend to get more attention and the forgotten main streets um, that exist, you know, via the, the slow roads or the back roads uh, in the region. Wow. Okay. So that is uh, a depth of history that I didn't know. I'll be honest that um, the attention that you have gotten around conversation points, things like uh, the famed Parcel 5, which I may need you to help uh, orient the listeners on, um, seems to be uh, w one of the most notable things in your recent uh history. And perhaps I've got that wrong. Um, you know, what would you say is kind of the hallmark and what you're known for, maybe outside the core group of, of people who would be directly interested and aware of um, city planning and, uh, you know, renewal projects, people who are actually predisposed to that, but the general public, what are you best known for in the general public? Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I tend to I tend to kind of have this wild experience of of being able to pick different projects and really get involved in the things that I really care about, um, and that's really driven from from a passion and sometimes you know an, an impending need, uh, as of the case with Parcel Five, which we'll get into here in just a minute. Um, but I would say to answer your question, I think people really see me as a, a connecting force. Um, you know, I try to take that multidisciplinary perspective and I try to find collaborative partners and, and kind of my belief is that innovation comes from a multidisciplinary mindset. And so if you can get uh, enough people in the room that have maybe siloed specific experience and you can blend them together, um, that those relationships and kind of the gaps between those silos is where you find the innovation on, on how to come together and how to, how to overcome really sometimes very challenging problems. Um, or bring attention to something in a new way and really change people's perspective about, you know, something they thought they understood that they now see differently because you've been able to come up with a collaborative approach. Um, 
so I would I would say in the community, but also you know at the end of the day, uh, it, it's necessary that it takes an approach of reaching out you know to through different industries, uh, through different people, and you know finding ways to blend people's passions and vision um, in order to to you know for the greater good. So um, I, I like this uh, point that you're making about collaboration and the multidisciplinary approach to things. Um, one, I believe you because I, I do believe that's true and I've seen evidence of that in my own world. Um, but I'd like to, before we jump into almost the semi-controversial stuff, not that you've been controversial, but there has been a lot of <laughs> about uh, Parcel 5. Um, before we go there, how do you approach... Uh, collaboration and team building and getting the right partners into one of these projects to actually make a difference? Um, you know, I think it's sometimes it's almost starting from a basis of, of trying to like understand and analyze what the problem could be. And a lot of my stuff organically deals with, you know, either a local business that um, may have a, an incredible talent of what they're doing, but they haven't been able to showcase themselves uh, I've worked with municipalities as clients who don't have any tourism uh, or marketing person on staff, which is many, many, many small villages. And so they have all these assets, but they don't know how to communicate what they are. Um, and so sometimes that's coming in and that's, you know, finding ways to identify uh, what the assets are. Um, it's, it's, it's a unique approach, I think, really to kind of come in and, and towns and villages, for example, may think they have a pretty good understanding of who they are and what they do, but sometimes they don't know even the people that are in their community uh, that they could be showcasing. And so for me, it's, it's almost this, this um, it's a lot about analysis and assessment. And so those are the first steps for me. And uh, you know, I begin to think about how, how these different people and how these different entities can work together. And actually uh, a very practical example on that, when I was working um, with the village of Scottsville, uh, which is kind of on the Southern side of Monroe County, uh, you know, I came in and Scottsville is this pioneering community. It was one of the first communities west of the Genesee River that was established back in 1789. Um, you know, they have this well-founded history, um, but I think a lot of, you know, great housing stock, National Register of Historic Places, but I think a lot of people don't, don't know that, you know, they are a huge recreational asset. And so I, I came in and, you know, I was looking at uh, maps and, uh, you know, looking at what the different parks were that were in the area, the Genesee Valley Greenway, which is a 90-mile converted uh, rails to trail um, that goes all the way from basically Genesee Valley Park, 90 miles to the Pennsylvania border, goes right through the heart of Scottsville. And they're one of the few communities that actually have that level of connection to that. Um, I started looking at other uh, area assets that they could partner with on events like uh, the Rochester and Genesee Valley Railroad Museum, uh, located just a few minutes away in Rush, New York. They had never worked together on any project before. And then uh, what's even more known in the region is the Genesee Valley um, uh, and Country Museum that's uh, down the road in Mumford, New York. And they hadn't really done anything with them. And so, uh, you know, we started looking at some of the, the signature events that the village was doing and how we could bring together some of those entities. Um, there was more formal structure with some of those things, and they wanted to investigate the potential of creating a 501c3 that really dealt with um, kind of filling in some of these gaps with uh, community and economic development in the neighborhood. And so I, I actually worked to uh, kind of look at best practices that were happening in the region. And so I was looking at the South Ledge Planning Committee in downtown Rochester and looking at their bylaws and, and helping them write bylaws for the village of Scottsville um, because South Ledge Planning Committee already had a previously 
good history. And so they wanted to bring elements of that. So I think I kind of say all those things to say, you know, again, really thinking outside the box about um, what, el what else good is happening in the region? How can they tie to those things? How can we look at best practice? And how can you uh, integrate and adopt those things? Um, and sometimes, honestly, people make it easy because if people are talented in what they're doing and, and noticeable because of the work they're doing, then I see them as, as obviously a very good and viable uh, fit towards a partner, towards a project. Yeah, I guess that makes a ton of sense. So, I, you know, sticking with Scottsville for a second, um, you know, I know the Train Museum. I've been there. I know the Genesee uh, Country Museum. I've been there many times. And um, there's always that chance, and I'm not saying that uh, these organizations were operating this way, but there's that chance that you've got organizations that might just be happily operating on their own and they don't perceive that they need to collaborate. And so you take an entity such as Scottsville, who is maybe being um, revealed by you, you know, they're understanding that collaboration might be a key. What's that conversation look like when you're representing something like a Scottsville and you go to another organization and say, hey, I want to rope you in. How do you get their attention and get their buy-in in order to solidify that, hey, we're all going to collaborate now? Yeah, I mean, I think you need willing partners. I think sometimes um, part of what you need to do is work on the mindset that, that collaboration is the best way forward. Um, I, sometimes I think there's a generational aspect of that that I try to pick up on. I always joke that I'm like a grandfather to millennials because um, I'm like within that area. I was born in 1983. I'll be 35 in July. And uh, but I'm like, you know, I'm like an older millennial. So um, child of the 80s kind of thing. Um, yeah, you and me both. You know, but some, so, yeah, so, but sometimes I think it's generational. I think sometimes that's where you can push some of that innovation too. is if maybe they don't see the initial um, need to be something different, then you can start talking about the future and preparing for the future and mm. attracting, you know, a different demographic that may not be a primary, primarily attracted to, to an area. Um, and that is, you know, incredibly important. Obviously, you know, you want uh, to keep your populations going well. That's really the bread and butter of where um, villages and municipalities make their money comes from their tax base. Right. And you want your, you, you know, your properties to be well maintained. You want to continue to have that population. And so um, sometimes it's kind of, again, even working with the client, it's having them think about something that they may not initially be thinking of. Um, you know, it's a great question. I've, I've run into really uh, very strange situations in the past where we've had really high level um, attention based on what we've done. But exactly like you're saying, there's resistance at the, at the local level. Um, you know, we had a project that, uh, we did in Medina, uh, New York with the railroad museum several years ago that, uh, drew attention from the New York times. It was actually printed in the travel section of the, of the New York times. And it's, uh, wow. there's a blog up on their in transit blog. And so we took the small village of Medina and we, we did this, uh, Niagara wine trail and farm to table, uh, train and, uh, sold out many, many, many different runs. And at the end of the day, part of the reason that didn't continue is that, um, though, that was that level of success. There was a feeling locally that they didn't want uh, outside ideas or outside help. And so some of the organizations involved decided to go forward. And, um, you know, do I think they missed out on a, on a huge, massive potential to redefine Western New York uh, through 60 miles worth of rail? rail? Uh, I do. Um, but that was the decision that they made. Uh, and so sometimes I think part of the nature of being a consultant and um, as frustrating as that can be, uh, sometimes you have to, you know, you, you 
can't shy away from the flash in the pan. Occasionally flashes in the pan are good because they can advance work down the line. Um, it's something I may return to. It's something I'd love to approach with, you know, with other heritage railroad uh, entities to, to reinvent their attendance and um, the funding that's required for the, the upkeep of those cars and things demands a certain level of, uh, you know, financial viability. So um, that's still something that I'm interested in pursuing, but, you know, that would be an example where even though we had a, an amazing uh, event and we had incredible, you know, millions of viewers, the local population didn't necessarily endorse it and it was time to move on. Wow. That's really interesting. Um, was that um very public conversation or was that kind of a closed door thing? And, and don't throw anybody under the bus, not that you would, but <laughs> like weighing a little yeah, bit ultimately, over to the parcel five conversation. Cause that one, um, there was a lot of public, but I bet there was a lot of behind the door on that one too. Right. Well, you're, you're hitting on a very good point too, which I think is, you know, sometimes it's about being accountable to the community. Um, but, uh, it, yeah, I mean, largely that was, that happened from closed doors. Um, I was a board member of the railroad museum and ended up stepping off the board um, based on the direction that things were going. And, oh, um, you know, that's ultimately that's you know, democratic vote and a democratic process. And that has to be respected. And if that's not what they want to pursue in the future, then that's not what they want to pursue. Um, but obviously thinking that there is immense uh, lost potential. And I think sometimes too, you know, you, you hear these analogies about being, um, you know, like the, the piece of sand in a, in a, in a, clam or something that creates a pearl, right? That irritation ends mm -hmm. up becoming a pearl. Well, sometimes people really feel that irritation. They, they're not open to um, progressive change or uh, sweeping changes. You know, when you're approaching something like a small um, rural community in Orleans County, uh, and then all of a sudden they receive attention like they do with the New York Times. So sometimes, you know, I think there's, um, it can be a real challenge. Uh, and sometimes you can't always anticipate that the scope of something like that, we, we certainly didn't anticipate that we would be getting that level of attention. Um, and I think sometimes people become a little gun shy uh, based on that as well. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. All right, so um, I, I'm gonna just do a hard segue. I, I love what you just explained there. And it, actually, before we do that, listeners, if you notice, big attention when you're not used to it could be intimidating for some personalities. That right there is a very simple but massive takeaway from just that story alone, that the right amount of attention might be a critical component of whatever effort you're trying to pursue. Um, it actually kind of reminds me, I don't know if you've ever seen Gilmore Girls. My wife is a huge junkie of that. <laughs> but you've got a very Stars Hollow description going on right there. And I think the New York Times picked <laughs> out half of their town and the other half would have been putting up signs you know, touting that they were in the New York Times. So I guess it takes all kinds. Uh, so shifting over to Parcel 5, can you explain that first, uh, just so that a listener would understand what that is? But, um, I, you know, obviously we have an understanding that you are the type of person who would find interest in that and get involved. But could you orient us on how you became a bit of a fixture in that conversation? Sure. So uh, Parcel 5 is uh, a, a very uh, contested piece of land um, right in the heart of Rochester, New York, right on Main Street. And uh, it was actually the home to one of the earliest malls in the country, uh, Midtown Mall, um, which was developed by architect Victor Gruen, uh, who was kind of called the grandfather of architects for the malls that came to the United States. Um, I believe he was from Vienna. Um, they demolished the mall. The mall kind of fell into disrepair and and you know, businesses weren't making it. Um, so the mall was demolished, I think, back in 
back in like 2004, I want to say. Uh, and ever since, there is a uh, parcel that uh, feels like a giant hole in the heart of Rochester. It's 1.17 acres. Um, and it is just a gravel lot. Um, and uh, just to evoke the sense that the, the lot itself um, brings in its current state, uh, I saw a recent Facebook comment that somebody commented uh, on a photo and said it looks like Berlin after the war. Um, so the lot itself isn't overly attractive when you look if you're looking down at the lot. But what I do want to say is that when you look at that as a district, it's surrounded uh, by incredible skyscrapers and buildings, absolutely spectacular views. It's been utilized for the largest festivals that Rochester has, like the Jazz International uh, Jazz Festival. Um, and uh, the Fringe Festival as well, where 10,000 people have gathered. Um, so you take this gravel lot and all of a sudden you put 10,000 people in it and you put music or you put uh, you know, floating art installations as part of Fringe Fest and then it becomes one of the most beautiful places in, all of, uh, in the entire city. Um, so it has unlimited potential. And, and basically um, through a, a, a friend and a local community advocate, Ken Sato, um, he, Ken was somebody who was, uh, you know, is, is a big picture guy. He actually did a, a, something called Big Picture Rochester, um, which put massive 10 to, you know, 15 story images on the side of buildings downtown. And he was really trying to do a, a city revitalization effort um, to help Rochester, which was, you know, kind of on hard times. And, uh, you know, he saw a potential opportunity here. I joined him in his efforts to respond officially to the city RFP process. And we came up uh, together with a concept um, that he called Visionary Square. And basically, Visionary Square was designed to um, kind of be a combination of what I call very low impact development. So things like kiosks and, uh, you know, whether that's a coffee shop or uh, an ice cream store or a place to buy some goods, uh, kind of really all of Bryant Park in New York City for those people that have visited. Um, the goal was to create a beautiful public space that would continue to allow the community to gather and really go away from kind of um, parcel development to really looking at the area as a district. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, you've, you put in a proposal, which I know I've personally gotten behind your vision 100% and done what little I could as a social media junkie um, sharing and commenting. There were other ideas for the parcel as well. And it seemed like they're just turned into a regular um, social media battle over the conversation. And I, I'll tell you, as an outside observer, it felt like there was this world of people who agreed with you, and then there was politicians who couldn't figure out what they wanted to make that to be. And then, of course, the famed uh, theater that was vying mm -hmm. for the other chunk of attention. Um, can you riff on what the conversation as a region started to look like. And, um, you know, it's just, <laughs> there, there was probably a two-year period where you were in every Facebook feed. You were on, on my LinkedIn all the time. You were featured in all sorts of different periodicals on this topic. And I love how much attention you got. And I think a lot of it's just from your personality and your hard work and your passion. Um, cause that just kind of oozes out of you in all the right ways. But, um, can you think back and maybe discover some of how all of that built around the conversation? Yeah. You know, I, I think, um, 
trying to amplify really what I think the community already wanted, um, you know, to be simple about it. I think, you know, for many, many of us to see these images, you know, downtown in Rochester, and if you search the Rochester Jazz Festival on Google, or even if you probably search Parcel 5, some of these images will pop up, but to see what the heart of the city looked like with that many people downtown, uh, especially in a city that needs people to come back downtown and especially needs a nightlife um, and things to do. Um, it was, it's a no brainer for many of us, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a sophisticated idea to say, look, why would we not keep this, this area public and continue to let this place be equitable and accessible to everybody. Um, and I think even with, with the spirit of, of Midtown, I think looking at Midtown, uh, that was a place where people came together. It was a place where they came to celebrate as a family. You know, they rode the monorail, they went and they saw the clock of nations. They, they went to see Santa Claus. It was, it was a community gathering place in Rochester and the format didn't work anymore. A closed mall in, in a downtown. I understand why, uh, you know, a format like that doesn't work when malls traditionally locate in the suburbs, you know, off of major expressways and things like that. But I still think the ethos should remain intact. And so I think, um, really, that process for me was just t tapping into what I felt needed to be said even louder um, and trying to raise the volume on that issue and then seeing that there was uh, an official process that we could respond. And, and, you know, I mean, our development, I think the total cost of our development was around $770,000 to put low impact uh, kiosks and to turf the, the entire 1.17 you know, lot acre. We were, we were up against $100 million projects, you know, and so... We were, we were absolutely the underdogs in this all the way through, except for the fact that we, we had that community support. Um, and so, you know, really, I, I think that just a simple answer is it was about channeling the community's interests and desires and just really trying to take that uh, to the people that had the political power to make the decision about what was going to be developed on Parcel 5. That's awesome. Where does it stand right now? Where's the conversation? <laughs> So that is a fantastic uh, question as of even two days ago. Um, you know, what we hear and what we know is that uh, it was a very interesting situation. Basically, the mayor had a uh, another one of the, the developers um, pegged to, to come in and take over this development. Um, there was a last minute kind of, uh, it's been described to me as a, as a backroom deal um, with a, another de developer in the community to come and do the, the theater. Um, the other the other developer for the record was also interested in keeping a public space component. Uh, I think at least three quarters of that lot, uh, even though they're going to build a, a tower um, with mixed use development, they're still were looking at three quarters lot of public space, which would enable things like, you know, the Jazz Fest and French Fest to continue. Um, however, um, the current administration made a decision to talk with uh, one of the largest developers in Rochester. Um, and I won't mention them by name, but what I will say is that uh, as of two days ago, the, the, that developer's offices were raided by the FBI. Um, so there's some very questionable, uh, I think there's a lot of questions in general right now about what is going to happen with Parcel 5 moving forward. Um, there's always also been a huge issue of closing the gap in financing. This, uh, the Performing Arts Theater was seeking over $20 million in state subsidies from New York State, um, of which there was you know, indications that there might be some resistance towards that actually happening. Um, so, I, you know, as, as well as I do right now, what's going to happen to Parcel 5, but it is uh, as a giant mystery and a giant question. Um, meanwhile, you know, community groups uh, like the, the uh, people for Parcel 5 um, continue to hold some events there. Um, and there's, you know, it's still a, a trending topic all the time. And it's back in the news again because of uh, what happened with this developer downtown. 
Uh, yes, I, I saw that, uh, let's just say Bob's office has had some activity. Um, the absolutely fascinating story that I, I will continue to follow from afar, you know, of course, you know, I did keep an office in Rochester, but more and more I'm finding my world is, uh, you know, I, I flutter and fly to uh, wherever the interesting story is. So um, that could be Rochester and that could be anywhere. So I'm back to town every once in a while and thank God for the RBJ. It keeps me uh, uh, in the know a little bit. Um, so, you know, I want to wrap this up a little bit. I want to respect your time, but I'm wondering, can you do a thought experiment with me right now? Um, let's say there was a community issue at hand, something like a parcel five, but there was a time limit, maybe a month to get proposals and buy-in in in order to do the right thing by a small municipality or a parcel, what tactics or methods would you immediately default to in order to get, um, I don't know, is it public opinion behind you? Is it legislators behind you? What, what are some natural things that you would do in order to get some attention and get the right things happening in order to do right by a project? Uh, great question. Again, you know, I think um, really, again, it's about trying to find and partner with other community advocates who can who can come in and kind of be a part of your your army, um, who you know see the vision behind it. You've got to find people that share your vision. Um, that's number one. I think number two, you've got to look at best practice. Um, you have to benchmark and kind of look at what you're trying to do and where it's been done well. And then you need to interject and bring those things into the, into the conversation. Um, you know, with Parcel 5, uh, we launched a site called thisisnotapark.com um, as part of our, our branding slogan um, to actually create a civil square. And then we also started looking at the best civil squares across the United States and linked to those projects and those developments, um, just as, a, as an example. Um, so I think, you know, again, finding the best people to collaborate with, um, looking at best practice. And then I would say... Um, really making sure that you're you're crossing your T's and dotting your I's. Um, when you're participating in an RFP process, you need to make sure that the product that you're putting forward is going to be um, competitive to a level that it's written well enough and it contains a pro forma and it contains uh, all the aspects of what you need to uh, get in front of decision makers. Uh, and also in some cases, you know, I know the, the, the idea of media right now is a contentious issue and, and, politics in the nation, then uh, everyone wants to call every, everything fake news. Um, but I would say in our case, you know, we leveraged the media um, and, and really appreciated that the, the media paid attention to what we were doing. And I think if you really, if you find synergy with an issue and if you really believe you're tapping into the desires of the community, then I think that those are the type of issues that you can get people to pay attention to. Um, and then maybe one last aspect of it, you know, be, uh, be creative in your marketing. Um, you know, we came up with slogans like free parcel five. Um, we got parcel five, you know, trending on social media through hashtags. Uh, you know, we, um, did a lot of images, just showed photos of, of what the space was and started doing a little bit of vision casting, uh, and then came up with domains and URLs like this is not a park, uh, you know, dot com to, to be provocative about the messaging behind it. Wow. I love how actionable all of those ideas are. Listener, did you listen to all of that? Go back about three minutes and hit play again. That is <laughs> good information. So, uh, Ben, thank you. Uh, I'm going to do a famous last question. Is uh, Are you a reader and is there a book that you could recommend um, 
for your industry um, in, for planning and uh, urban renewal and all of the marketing you do for uh, projects and municipalities, where could somebody learn a little bit about your world? Um, great question. Um, I think, you know, uh, there's a book that kind of inspired the initial thought process behind some of this, which is called The Great Good Place um, by Ray Oldenburg. Um, he talks about the concept of third places. He says you find your community in your home, uh, number one, in your work, number two, and those third places are where you adopt, um, that you find a, a source of belonging. Third places can be public squares like we're talking about. They can be your favorite coffee shop. It's where you go organically to connect with people around you. Um, so that's a driving influence for me. Um, outside of that, I probably would actually recommend um, just research on uh, things like uh, health impact assessments and health and all policies. Um, the reason I mention that is coming from uh, work I've done over the last 18 months, and uh, I'm beginning to understand that some of these ideas of placemaking can actually be quantified through improving people's health and actually looking at how the built environment can improve the community's health. And so um, this is really an emerging uh, topic in the United States that's happening. Um, but there's a, a website, um, if you Google uh, the Health Impact Project, uh, there's an interactive map that will show you every HIA that's been done uh, across the United States. And a lot of the times you find built environment projects and they, and they look at things like, you know, how can, how can a trail or how can green space improve physical activity? How can it improve mental health? Uh, how can it improve the relationship with the community? Um, and so, I, you know, I think those are all, all things that as I'm, certainly for me, I'm, I'm researching those things now because I'm looking to quantify potential positive outcomes from the work that I'm doing um, and to be able to, you know, again, put it in a different, different realm and different perspective for people to understand those benefits. That is really interesting stuff. I will personally be going and digging a little bit because, uh, you know, our environment and our community matters and I want to understand that a little bit better. So thank you. Um, the very last thing I want to know is how do people find you? The, what is your favorite way for people to learn about your business? Is it your website? Is it your socials? Where should I send people? Um, yeah, I, you know, I think, uh, I've spent a lot of time on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I think I'm still trying to learn how to leverage, uh, those connections, um, towards work as well. But, uh, I recommend people just search my first and last name, Benjamin, uh, Welk, W-O-E-L-K on LinkedIn. Um, the other reason that's a good source is that I have a lot of uh, the projects. It's probably the best source for highlighting the portfolio of projects I've worked in. Um, outside of that, people can uh, reach me through uh, slowroadconsulting.com. Um, and there's just a, a simple you know, form you can fill out to reach out to me if you're looking for uh, assistance in anything from uh, tourism, placemaking, um, you know, small business development and marketing. Um, you know, initiatives and also some policy uh, oversight so people can reach out to me on uh, either one of those channels. Ben, I want to thank you again for your time. You are a really interesting character, my friend. Um, all of your uh, willingness to dedicate time and attention to uh, community causes and that selflessness. Interestingly, I'm going to point out that it actually has paid off for your career. You know, when you go ahead and, uh, you know, people listening, when you dig into something that is beyond you and it's it's greater than yourself, it tends to actually pay back. And if you're in it for the right reasons, which I know Ben is, um, you know, he is in it to make a difference for other people. Um, 
you know, it's karmic. It's what goes around comes around. It's uh, kind of a law of the universe that um, givers gain is a real thing. And he kind of lives that out. And we've talked on the podcast before. Uh, at length, actually, about the notion of giver's gain from the Business Networking International Ivan Meisner theory perspective. And uh, that's very, very real. But, um, you know, it extends out in a uh, very universal law way to other uh, realities. And, And Ben is a living example of when you focus on other people, everything comes together. And, uh, you know, that's just a great example for us all that we need to kind of transcend our own selves. And, uh, you know, it's very childlike when you're focused selfishly on yourself. And it's very um, it's very adult and modern to uh, look beyond yourself and do right by your community. And, uh, Ben, you're a shining example of what it means uh, to do and live that giver's gain uh, mentality. And I, I feel like you're doing that all quite quite right so um i am honored to know you you're a great guy and uh you know we chatted offline a little bit about grabbing that beer in person that's got to actually happen sooner rather than later i'm truly going to enjoy that um i you know it's nothing like getting in the presence of somebody who uh when they speak knowledge oozes and i uh i experienced that today on the podcast i hope you as a listener experienced that too um And, uh, you know, if you are interested in engaging with Ben more, uh, you want to uh, affect your community positively. You want to if you're listening in the Western New York area and you want to get involved in things like the uh, Parcel 5 conversation, uh, you know, he's he's the guy. So reach out to him on LinkedIn. He said that's his favorite place to uh, connect with people. So uh, Benjamin Welk, W-O-E-L-K on LinkedIn. A very easy guy to find. Uh, Go engage with him and engage with me. Hey, it's the Get Attention blog and podcast. And I love when people go and uh, make comments and send me messages. Go to getattention.work and subscribe so I can make sure you're in the know about what's going on with the Get Attention world. And, uh, you know, this is the first time I'm going to say that this show is sponsored by smbfilmschool.com. smbfilmschool.com is actually uh, my film school for small businesses because small businesses all struggle to get attention and need a leg up and you know I am offering an understanding of how to uh, really navigate the waters of video in a social media world so that small businesses actually don't have to worry about hiring guys like me I'm selling myself out of work And that's okay because small business is the lifeblood of the U.S. economy. And, uh, you know, supporting that is a good thing. Maybe I'm living a little bit of the giver's game thing, I hope, too. Um, Ben, I've got a lot to learn from you, sir. So, hey, thank you. God bless everyone. I'm going to see you on the next vlog. Tomorrow is Low Tech Friday, and I am literally reviewing a piece of plastic tomorrow but there's purpose behind it i promise so uh low tech friday josh reviews a hunk of plastic and actually i'm gonna give it a thumbs up see you on the next vlog thanks